Hey, welcome back to part two of the birth story of my first son. His birthday um, in real time as I'm recording this is tomorrow and I just can't, uh, I just can't even believe it. Um, so let me remind you that I am reading this story verbatim essentially from my blog that I wrote about a year and a half after he was born. So I might do some side notes to add on things that I have learned since um, writing this, but I'm kind of, I wrote it in a way that was very educational and very thorough. So it just made sense to read what I wrote in its raw form. So here we go. I wrote this in hopes that my story would be helpful to other moms out there, either to help inform them or to help them heal from their own stories. Birth is beautiful, but there can be trauma as well. And trauma is in the eye of the beholder and to each woman her own. It's a pretty long read or listen. (laughs) So I understand if you decide not to partake. Um... But if you do, you are in for an informative and interesting ride. Here we go. If you have not listened to part one, please go back and listen to part one. It gives you context um, leading up to today, which is May 10th at 10 p.m. We pulled up to the hospital a little after 10 p.m. We were told at the birth center earlier that day to go through the emergency room since it was after normal hours. Due to parking restrictions, I got dropped off at the front of the ER while my mom and sister went to to park. My husband, Para, was coming in a separate vehicle so that he could stay with me when my mom and my sister needed to leave. I sat in the breezeway waiting with all of my bags as people came and left. It was a really busy night at the ER. It felt pretty surreal that this is how my birth story would begin. It was definitely not what I had in mind. I felt a little lost, not really sure where to go. I knew I was looking forward. I knew I was not looking forward to all the monitoring and being bothered by a flood of nurses, but it just was what it was. As I sat there, I began a video journal to help me document my experience. Maybe one day I'll share those journals with the world as well. Guys, I don't even know where those videos are. I would have to do some digging. When my mom and my sister finally parked and walked all the way to meet me, we walked in together. We went to the desk and told them why we were there. They seemed slightly confused as to why we were told to come through this way. After some calls were made by the woman at the front desk, they brought a wheelchair for me and said that they would take me up. They said they realized who we were and that the midwife had let the labor floor know that we were coming. My midwife made sure that we did not need to go through triage. Thank God. I was not in labor yet, so I believe the wheelchair was to speed up the journey through the hospital hallways. I was not moving too fast at this point in pregnancy. We finally got to our room after what felt like a five-mile trek through the hospital. I was impressed with the room. It was a corner room and was really large. Larger than the labor rooms at the birth center, actually. Of course, there was no cool sling or birth tub, but there was a big shower and space to spread out. 
Since the labor floor knew we were coming, the midwives' heads up allowed us to bypass crazy triage, and since the room was nice, I got a sense that everything was going to be fine here. The hustle of the ER had been left downstairs, and I felt a moment of comfort in my choice to come to the hospital. That was my first up emotion in the roller coaster that was to come. We asked to meet the doctor that we had heard so many great things about. She said, or they said, excuse me, that she was unavailable. And the understanding was that she was in another birth. I understood and was fine with waiting. No labor was happening anyways. As we waited, we got checked in. A resident came in the room and was clearly a newbie. He brought me a standard consent form and asked me to sign it. I glanced through it and immediately refused to sign it without some major revisions. The form had words on it like episiotomy, vacuum, forceps, etc. I was not consenting to that. That poor resident was just like really, really needed me to sign. (laughs) He was just trying to do his job but was not ready for my crazy self. I don't think any of his patients have had ever refused to sign before. Time to learn, buddy. I did sign the form for that poor guy, but only after crossing off everything except for a vaginal delivery. Then the poor guy wanted to do an ultrasound to determine if my baby was head down. I face palmed all over again. I know that a simple ultrasound should not be a big deal, but it was to me. First of all, I had been very cautious with ultrasounds throughout my pregnancy. I did not want my baby exposed to any extra junk out of from the outside world unless it was really, really necessary. I also was taken aback by the reason for the ultrasound. At the birth center, they were very hands-on and would touch, feel, and probe my belly at every visit. They would use their hands on my belly at each appointment to tell me where baby was. He had been head down for months, and they could always feel it. They could even show me how to feel it. How come all of a sudden they needed electronic waves to figure that out? Though annoyed, I went ahead and allowed him to do it. I could tell this poor guy had no idea how to feel a belly. My annoyed mind asked is this stuff not taught in medical school? (laughs) Whatever. I didn't actually say that out loud, by the way. (laughs) He He located the baby as head down, as I already knew, and left the room. We got settled into the room. I changed into my comfy nightgown and robe from home, and we started to play cards. Para, my husband, even took over the hospital bed to lay down. At this point, we were lightening up the mood and even laughing for a bit. My nurse even asked me if I had a birth plan, and I was so impressed that they even asked. I handed her my plan and was feeling really good about things. For now. Not long after that, a second more experienced resident came in. She sat down very politely and told me that it was the hospital policy that I sign a new, unaltered consent form. She assured me that these measures are only used as last-minute resorts, quote, to keep me and baby from dying. Though I knew this is slight BS depending on the facility and her continuous emphasis on, quote, avoiding death was pretty extreme, she gained just enough of my trust. I said I would sign 
only if there was the assurance and understanding that I am only consenting to these measures if I am passed out and quite literally incapable of consenting in the moment and that they they were absolutely necessary, that nothing was allowed to be done to my body that I did not give consent to in that moment. She assured me of this and I felt okay about finally signing. After that, they wanted to get a saline lock put in. Yet another thing that I was not crazy about. I knew the birth center would not have required this of me, and I knew that it was not entirely necessary. After going around about it, the hospital basically begged me to have one. I allowed it. Para told me to let go of the little things and save my energy for the bigger fights if needed. If I had only realized how right he would be. The bigger fights were definitely coming. I do want to sidebar here that I do say to my clients, you don't have to die on every hill. And if you want to, I will be right there with you, but you don't have to. Because advocacy is exhausting. And the goal, my goal, is to always help my clients not have to advocate so much for themselves in the moment because we've done all of the investigating, all of the question asking, doing as much as we can ahead of time to make sure that we are in a space on birthday that is in a most alignment with our desires and values. But sometimes, like my situation here, it doesn't always happen that way. And so because advocacy can be so exhausting, even with a support team, sometimes it's okay to let go of the things that don't matter as much, which in my case, in this case, was having that saline heplock placed. There was no IV connected at, the, at that moment. Um, anyways, I will get back to the story. At this point, I circled back to where the heck my doctor was. It was midnight or later at this point, and I had still not yet met her. After all the small obstacles so far... I really just wanted the comfort of meeting this amazing doctor that everyone knew and loved. The doctor that was the reason for me choosing to birth at this location. The doctor that I had placed my trust in now that my midwives, who I had spent copious amounts of time with in the past two weeks, were no longer part of this process with me. The doctor whom I thought my midwife had talked to directly earlier that day when we were at the birth center. Where was the doctor? Then one of the nurses told us that she was not even there. (laughs) Wait, what? They said that she was at home, but not to worry. They assured me that her team was there and explained that she was in charge, but not always physically there. They assured me I was in good hands. Their assurance meant nothing to me. I wanted her there. I was promised I would meet her when I transferred my care to her. This was not the plan. Okay, now we're at about 11-ish p.m., still on May 10th. This is when I lost it. I broke down crying and needed to get in touch with my midwife. I felt bad calling her on the emergency line so late But this was my emergency, and I was still her patient. I would never have agreed to go to this facility had I that I had never been to, 
or to transfer my care to a provider that I had never met had I not understood that I would not be meeting her that night. Why the hell did they schedule me to come in at this time, 10 p.m., if she was not going to be here? I could have had another night in my own bed. I cried on the phone to my midwife, and she was truly sorry for what was happening. She apologized for the miscommunication and said she was under the impression that the doctor was going to be there. I know she meant it, but I still felt that more could have been done to assure things would have gone as they said. She told me that if I had not met the doctor by 9 a.m. the next day to give her a call and she would make it happen. I felt okay with this and let her go back to sleep. After I calmed down, it was time to make some moves towards getting labor going. That's what I was here for, right? We decided on Cervidil and a Cook Balloon catheter at the same time. The decision was not as easy as it sounds, though. The same resident that convinced me to sign the consent form really wanted me to go with Cytotec, otherwise known as Misoprostol, instead of the Cervidil. She kept trying to tell me that they were the exact same, except for Cytotec, quote, just works better. They wanted it so bad, and they must have assumed I would comply because they even taped it to my monitor screen. I knew, however, that it was not exactly the same and that the better, quote, also meant faster. Cervidil is like a tampon that can be removed if contractions get going too fast. Cytotec is a pill. Once it's placed in the vagina and it dissolves, what's done is done. Cytotec for cervical softening is also an off-label use and not FDA approved for this purpose. Not necessarily a problem, but at the time, I wasn't feeling it. I knew my body was not really ready for labor, obviously, and that I wanted to take things as slow as possible to keep things as low intervention as possible. She kept trying to convince me, but I got my way in the end. Just a reminder, moms, that you have a choice. And after the fact, and I, I should have added this to my written version, but I realized that Cervidil was going to take longer for them to order and it's more expensive for the hospital. <laughs> so, of course, they wanted me to have the cheaper option. I'm sure they would profit much more off of it and it was readily available. They weren't going to have to order it. So anyways, I will continue back to the story. 3.36 a.m. on May 11th. So this is in the middle of the night. After all the back and forth, settling in, meltdowns, etc., the Cook Balloon and Cervidil were finally placed. If you are not familiar, a Cook Balloon is much like a Foley bulb, which I explained in part one. There is a catheter tube that is inserted into the cervix and a saline balloon that is filled. Unlike the Foley, a Cook Balloon has a balloon on the top and the bottom of the cervix, as opposed to just the top, like a Foley. The process of filling the balloon was really painful. My cervix was still very thick, not very effaced, sorry, 
thick meaning not very effaced. Effaced is talking about the thickness of your cervix. And way far back, as it also had been for the last two weeks. The pain did not last, thankfully. Both of these gentle induction methods can stay inside for up to about 12 hours. So now we wait. And again, side note, these are not very gentle induction methods. They're just more gentle than Pitocin. So it's all relative. Of course, by now, I was super tired and needing to get some sleep. I knew I had a labor ahead of me and that I would need my energy for that. My mom and sister went home to sleep and Para slept on the couch in the room. The nurse that night was amazing. She was so nice and respectful of my sleep. She was the same nurse that asked about my birth plan and when we had arrived. She had to do plenty of monitoring, but was so quiet and kept the room really dark. We also had a helpful charge nurse, as well as a kind woman who inserted my IV. I was really trying to focus on the positive for a while, as there was actually quite a bit going on. I even added an entry to my video journal about keeping an optimistic outlook on things. At this point, we had also started the diffuser with lavender and put up my vision board. We even brought in our own pillows and blankets from home. I got a decent few hours of sleep before unfortunately experiencing another low on the ride. 7.53 a.m. May 11th. There had just been a shift change and I had to begin working with a new nurse. She was very kind, but not as experienced as the nurse that I had during the night. One of the first interactions was me asking for ice for my cooler. She wanted to know what, the, what was in the cooler, and I told her our food was in there. Then she brought up the dreaded topic that I had been hoping we would avoid, eating during labor. She told me that I was only supposed to consume clear liquids such as broth and jello. I got defensive in the moment and told her we would have to talk about that. She seemed timid and was just trying to follow the rules. If you haven't noticed by now, following rules was not my concern if evidence proves those rules were invalid. Though this statement may imply a super tough, empowered person, or maybe just a defiant one, was behind it, this interaction was really a punch to my gut. I felt all the good feelings I had mustered up over the night fade away. I felt sad and defeated again. I felt like a sick person or an accident waiting to happen. I felt my power being taken away by the simple act of not, quote, letting me eat. I knew from all the research that eating during labor is 100% fine and actually encouraged by evidence. I also knew that yet again, the birth center was, this was not going to be a fight. I was going to have to fight. I luckily did not have to dwell too long on this as our doctor finally arrived and was ready to meet us. Nine-ish a.m. on May 11th. She arrived just in time to calm my nerves and take my side. She told the nurse that it was totally okay for me to eat some lunch. 
she told me that she wanted me to stop eating once the the Pitocin started, if we needed that. But, or excuse me, I was not loving this caveat, but I let it go in the moment. I was just so happy to finally be meeting her. Para and I had woken up and we all chatted for a bit. I don't remember all of the details of our conversation, but I know that I got a great first impression. She was very kind and on board with me wanting to take things slow. She had to spend the day in her clinic, but assured me I could call her when the balloon came out and it was time to take any next steps. I felt at ease. 11.37 a.m. May 11th. So much of the next few hours is a blur to me. Thankfully, I had my video journals and text messages to reference back to. Please forgive me for the next few things getting choppy. At this point, nothing major was happening, but I was finally starting to feel more contractions. Still nothing extreme or consistent. My mom suggested that we hook up the breast pump to see if we could get things going a bit. It may have only helped a little with contractions, but also allowed us to collect some colostrum. Colostrum is the milk your body produces in pregnancy and the first few days of baby's life. It is liquid gold. 1.55 p.m. Para must have left to go grab some food or let our dogs out. My mom had to call him back. Things were picking up and I needed him there. It's kind of crazy looking back on this because I have no memory of these few hours. I don't remember if I had painful contractions. I don't remember what coping mechanisms I needed. I don't know how many women feel. I don't know how many women feel this in labor, but it's a weird sensation not knowing. Maybe this is evolution's way of getting us as a species to have more babies. (laughs) The feeling of not knowing and somewhat blacking out for portions of my birth experience is part of the reason why it took me so long to write this part of the birth story. I felt like I needed to know all the details before sharing my story with the world. I also feel a bit ashamed that I forgot portions of this beautiful, quote, experience. Of course, I know that none of this is true, that every woman is just doing her best and that it's okay to share before everything is perfect. One major thing that I don't vividly remember is when my doula got there. I had hired a doula to be at my birth fairly early on in my pregnancy. I don't have a solid recollection of every moment she was there, but I do remember her bringing a sense of calm. She was my sounding board throughout the past two weeks and the hours to come. She came and left throughout my labor because it was a long process. I know hiring her was one of the best decisions I made. A solid birth team and support people are vital in this process. 2.06 p.m. I checked in with my birth photographer to keep her in the loop. Of course I had been doing so before now. I told her that they would be um, coming in in 45 minutes to check the balloon progress. And at this point, I was feeling a lot more in my low abdomen and low back. Honestly, I only know this because of a message that I sent her. Again, I really have no recollection of this time. Side note, like I truly 
don't even, I couldn't even tell you like what those contractions felt like. Like I, I truly don't know, which is wild because clearly I was feeling them. But looking back, like I have no recollection. 2.31 PM. My cook balloon finally fell out when I was using the bathroom. I kept getting the urge to poop and I would be extremely uncomfortable every time I sat down to do so. So I would roll my hips in circles on the toilet to feel relief. Each time I would gently tug on the catheter attached to the balloon. This time it finally felt like it was coming out. I gave a small push and tug and it came right out. This meant that I was now dilated to four centimeters. I now know how unimportant dilation really is, but at this time I felt hopeful that hopefully this meant things would really gear up soon. And side note, I don't necessarily mean that dilation isn't important. Like you do have to dilate in order to have a baby. But what I meant by that statement was that the number is kind of arbitrary because there are women that sit at like three or four centimeters for two to three weeks before labor even starts. And there's women that dilate from a six to a 10 within 15 minutes. So that's what I meant when I said that dilation is unimportant. Okay, back to the story. 3.31 p.m. My mom texted my aunt, who was coming from Iowa to encapsulate my placenta, that I was four centimeters dilated and 50% effaced, aka thinned out, that since the balloon had fallen out and the contractions were still not very productive, they were probably going to start Pitocin soon. We called my doctor to consult with her, and she said she really thought that consistent contractions were what I needed at this point. I needed productive contractions to get baby to move down and into position. I needed them to put pressure on the cervix. We had tried everything else I knew to try, and finally I had to resort to the dreaded pit that I had been trying so hard to avoid. Looking back now, I know that there were other things that may have helped, as well as the option to give my body more time to start labor on its own. In that moment, the decision for an intervention felt like the right thing to do. I was concerned for the risks of going too far over 42 weeks gestation And you can only do the best you can with the information you have at the time. And that's what I did. The hospital staff was ready to go and start right away. I needed more time. This is when my emotions took over. All the effort I had put in trying to stay positive simply ran out in that moment. I had to re-watch my video journal to fully recall my feelings in this moment And I'll be honest, it was really emotional watching it. It brought back a lot of feelings from that moment and tears to my eyes. I went into the bathroom alone to take a minute to myself. I had come to terms with Pitocin being the next step, but was not fully ready to make that official decision. I did not want to be hooked up to an IV for the rest of my labor, and I was nervous about choosing to take the first truly medical intervention. Of course, the balloon and Cervidil were interventions, but they were way less intimidating to me. I really, really wanted to let my body do what it needed to do on its own.
<sighs> this is emotional reading this, you guys. Shit. <laughs> I wanted physiology to take over. I was heartbroken that things were not happening that way. I was also getting super annoyed with the level of monitoring at this point. They were coming to check on me and baby constantly. It was becoming ex- I was becoming extremely resentful of the poor sweet nurse just trying to do her job. It was not her fault, but a piece of me hated her in that moment. I wanted peace and calm and time to get in tune with my body. This was the opposite of my reality. I knew that with Pitocin, it would not get better. And probably it was going to get worse. Surprisingly, even in that moment, I was able to realize that they just wanted us to be healthy. That they were on my side and that I wanted the same thing. I took a moment to talk to my baby. To tell him or her that we were just so ready to meet them. I was scared. I cried. I was nervous. I needed to be alone with my thoughts and I cried some more. After being in the bathroom for a while, my mom sent Para in to be with me. He said all the right things in that moment. He comforted me and talked to baby. He gave me relief and I needed to finally be ready to move forward. That I needed to finally be ready to move forward. I also called my doula, who he had told to go home and get some sleep. She reminded me that I still had a voice, that this decision was not taking that voice away, that this decision was not taking away my baby or the love that I would have for my baby, that this decision was not taking away the joy that we were about to experience. I knew she was right. Even just reading that right now. That's exactly something I would say to a client. And just knowing how much it helped me in that moment. Um, let me emphasize here how important a birth team is. I am a strong and educated woman. I knew my shit walking into that hospital. And I knew what I wanted. I asserted myself to a point. I became vulnerable and tired. I became defeated and exhausted. It was my team that brought me back from that. I could not have done it without them. This will be demonstrated more and more as the story continues, but I seriously cannot stress this enough. 4.20ish p.m. May 11th started the Pitocin. For the sake of the story, I'm going to refer to my dosage of pit in number of milliunits, um, or excuse me, number of mu-ml, which is milliunits-milliliters of IV solution. I have seen it written as unit slash min and mu slash min as well. Just know that I'm not a medical professional and that I'm trying to be as accurate as as possible with my limited medical lingo. I started at 2MU-ML. So we'll just say I started at 2. 
and made a plan to go up gradually at two mill units every 30 minutes. This would allow me to still take things slow in hopes that my body would take over. The plan was to turn the pit off or lower it if my contractions were productive and kept going without it. I did not want to create a hard and fast labor that my body could not handle or that would put my baby in distress. I was also still hoping to avoid pain medication. I knew that contractions with Pitocin would most likely lead to this. Now that the new plan was in motion, we waited. 502. My mom texted my doula and my birth photographer to let them know that I was doing well and not much was happening. She told them that it was good to wait until about 8 p.m. for them to come join us. Past this point in my labor, so much is a big fog. Time warped for me, and my story was pieced together by looking back at text messages, asking my birth team, and recalling small bits here and there. I apologize if it gets even more choppy from here. For about the next four to six hours, not much happened. The pit was turned up slowly, and I used this opportunity to sleep because contractions had not gotten regular or extreme yet. Honestly, I have very little memory of this block of time. I believe Para and my mom took turns leaving to shower and let her dogs out. They ate and also slept. One thing I do recall is meeting my doctor for a second time. She had finished up at her clinic and was back. She was dressed very different this time, in sweats and a sweatshirt versus the nice outfit from before. I'm sure that's normal for for doctors working the overnight shift. What was not normal was the vibe she had. It had shifted from before. She seemed tired and slightly irritated. Maybe she had had a long day. I do not fault her for being tired. I will say, though, from that point on, the energy she brought into my room was not my favorite. I could tell over the next few hours that my fight-or-flight response was kicking in every time she would enter the room. I knew from my research that this can stall labor. Of course, that was the opposite of what I needed. And let me sidebar here by explaining this hormonal cocktail and this response that I'm talking about with the fight or flight response stalling labor. So our bodies need oxytocin to keep labor progressing, which pitocin, which is what I was on at this time, is the synthetic version of oxytocin. And oxytocin is released in the brain when you feel safe, calm, loved, secure, and The opposite of oxytocin is adrenaline or cortisol. And in our caveman days, adrenaline and cortisol were designed to save our life in labor to actually stall labor. So that, for instance, if you were giving birth and all of a sudden a saber-toothed tiger approached you, cortisol and adrenaline would kick in, oxytocin would lower, and your that, that fight-or-flight response would take all of that energy from your uterus and put it into your arms and legs so that you could literally run away from a tiger. And in our current-day situation, like in a hospital setting or just birthing anywhere, 
your brain does not know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger and, for instance, in my case, a doctor bringing a not great vibe into the room. So when I was saying my fight or flight response was kicking in every single time she entered the room, that meant cortisol and adrenaline were spiking and my labor truly was stalling in those moments. So I think that that's just really important for you to understand. I remembered that sometime before 9 p.m., she wanted to check my cervix and I declined. I don't remember exactly how many times I had been checked thus far, but I was not down for another one. Yes, moms, you can decline those. Another thing I have bits of memory around was my nurse. We had gone through yet another shift change, and this new nurse was older than the timid one I had earlier. She seemed much more knowledgeable and experienced. She was pretty accommodating with my birth preferences, and I liked her for the most part. We did butt heads when the dreaded talk of breaking my water began. Yet another thing I would have to fight for. May 12th, 12.59 a.m. My mom texted the birth photographer and told her that I was dilated to five centimeters and that she should head to the hospital. The photographer had to send her back up, but said that she would get there as soon as she could. So obviously, according to this text, I must have allowed them to check me between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. The contractions must have been getting stronger because I was making cervical progress. I say must have because this is super fuzzy for me. I do remember the water breaking discussion beginning though. The nurse and the doctor explained that the pit could not go higher than 20 milli units without an internal monitor inside my uterus, but that they really wanted one in sooner than that. They needed to measure the strength of my contractions after 20 milli units because safety reasons for baby. This could not be done with the external monitor alone. My birth team and I struggled to remember why my pit was not already at 20 milliunits by this point, two milliunits every 30 minutes would have put it there at around 9 p.m. My best guess is that I requested the pit to be increased slower than normal for yet another opportunity to let my body take its time. I may be wrong, but this is my best guess. It's possible that I may be getting some of these details confused. I am in the process of requesting my medical records for this information, but I did not want to delay the writing of my birth story any further. The specific details are not super necessary for you as a reader. So more for me in closure and healing from my experience. So we will continue. They eventually would need to break my water to get the internal monitor inserted to measure the strength of my contractions and another monitor on baby's head. I understood the need for this eventually, but not yet. I felt a motherly instinct to protect my baby from being disturbed while still in my womb. I felt sad about something having to be stuck to his or her head and did not want him or her to feel any pain. I also did not want to prematurely break my water with my baby still so high in my pelvis. I knew that this could cause baby to get stuck down into an improper position or even excuse me, sucked down into an improper position or even cause baby to get stuck. 
Ironically, this is exactly what happened to my mom when she was in labor with me. I also knew that once the water breaks, the clock starts. Most providers want a baby born within 24 hours of the water breaking to prevent infection. Some providers prefer for it to be less than that. I was anxious about having a timeline on my already super long-lasting birth process. Remember, I was now 42 weeks and one day, and that's 15 days past my due date. Lastly, I had learned that after the water breaks, especially if too early, contractions can get more extreme and less manageable. There was no longer going to be a cushion for baby, and things can get more rigid and painful. All of this being said, I understood that after Pitt was high enough, they would need to get an internal monitor. The problem was the pressure to break it before this point. My doctor tried to convince me, and we asked for more time to talk it over. I think this was annoying her (laughs) and added to the less than positive energy that she was bringing already. I asked the nurse to really explain to me why they needed to break it sooner. She tried. Oh, did she try. (laughs) She was trying to give me concrete answers to my questions, but couldn't because they did not exist. She was talking herself in circles. She kept trying to explain to me that they just wanted to know how strong the contractions were. And I kept telling her I knew how how strong they were because I could feel them. I could feel that they were not very strong. I knew she was just trying to do her job and comply with what the doctor wanted, but she clearly had no solid foundation to stand on. There was no medical reason for them to break my water before the Pitocin hit 20 milliunits. None. Only the convenience to the doctor of possibly speeding up my process. This convenience factor, quote unquote, became very obvious to me and was a huge turnoff. I was shocked that my doctor, whom everyone talked so highly of, was rushing me. Even if her way of rushing me was subtle, I definitely picked up what she was putting down. 1.30 a.m., excuse me, 1.53 a.m., May 12th, the backup photographer arrived. From here on out... I have many pictures to help document the process. I am not thrilled at how I look in any of these as I weighed 70 pounds more than I do now, (laughs) but I'm sharing them anyways. I think the visual will help more moms and future moms, and that is the goal with sharing my story. So um, since this is an audio version, you can't see the photos, but I will find a way to add the photos potentially to the show notes and if not um to my instagram or you can just reach out to me on instagram and ask for them and i'll find a way to get them to you (laughs) um i mean i'm not gonna just like send you all my pictures but like if we're cool then i might show you some (laughs) 2 19 a.m the doctor came in and wanting to and wanted to check check my cervix again 
I was annoyed at this because I could tell that there had been no change. I was not having very intense contractions. They were not regular. And I could tell that there was not enough happening to me to be dilated any further than the five centimeters I was before. She insisted since Pitt had been on for so long. I caved. She checked me and not to my surprise at all, I was still a five. Moms, you know your bodies best. Again, she seemed annoyed. This was when we had an end game discussion. You may be wondering what the hell an end game discussion is. And trust me, I was too. This was a conversation I never thought I would need to have, especially with this particular quote unquote midwife like doctor. I was getting heated. Because there was more talk of breaking my water prematurely, needing to get things moving along so they could increase the pit at a faster rate, which of course I did not want, and finally, the possibility of a C-section got brought up. This was the first time I can remember that it was mentioned at all. She was so convincing that I needed an end game that even Para began siding with her. She left us to discuss things, and I remember feeling so confused and not understanding how to articulate my feelings. Para was trying to calm me down by explaining to me that the doctor's trying to explain to me the doctor's point of view. He explained that she just wanted to know what our plan was, that we had been here for 28 hours. Yes, that's two eight. <laughs> and on pit for 10 of those and I was not progressing quickly and I did not want them to break my water so what was my plan that we needed to do something in order to get things moving or make the decision for an abdominal birth I know he was just trying to ease the tension but it did not work this time this is when I broke down yet again it was another low in the emotional roller coaster. Though things were foggy, I do not, I, excuse me, though things were foggy, I do remember this feeling very, very clearly. I felt hopeless at first. I let the doctor get into my head and I felt super, super discouraged. Yet something else just felt off. I was confused why Para was not understanding me and was taking her side. I could not articulate my feelings into words. And finally, after my breakdown, I was able to explain it. I did not need an end game at all. My end game was to have a damn baby. And as long as this baby's heart rate was fine, I planned on going as slow as I needed to go until my baby was born. I would be there another damn week if I needed to be. Of course, I would allow a C-section if things started to get unsafe. It was not about pride. It was about letting my body take its time as long as that was a safe option. Why in the hell was that so frowned upon? I knew that if I I knew that I had gone into pos- I 
knew that if I had gone into spontaneous labor before 41 weeks and six days, I would be laboring at home and headed into the birth center when things got intense. I would be in my element, doing my thing. I would be dancing around the house, nesting and taking walks to progress things at my pace. I would not be in this damn hospital room expected to have an end game. Damn, you guys, <laughs> writing this is making me realize that this moment in my labor is where most of my trauma actually lies. I don't think I realized it until this moment. I am crying as I type this. This conversation and realization was the point where I wanted to say fuck it and just get up and leave. I wanted to go home and come back another day or shit, just have my baby at home by my damn self. This is where I truly lost trust in my doctor and the midwives that sent me to her. I had fought for a lot up to this point, but finding words to explain to my birth team, including my own husband, that I was there to have a baby and did not care if it took another fucking week was the hardest part thus far. Mostly because it took so much effort for me to even articulate it myself. Thankfully, once I finally did explain it to them, They were in 100% agreement with me. They had my back. I knew there was, again, no medical reason for a C-section and that I was choosing to take my sweet time. My body and my baby were begging me to take my time. At some point in all of this mess, the doctor came back in and said she would come back in two hours to check on me. What she did not understand Excuse me, what did she not understand about we about me not wanting to be on a damn clock? I told her not to come back in two hours or four or whatever, that when things picked up, we would let her know. I honestly don't even know what she said at, best, at that point. I just remember not wanting her timing me and to be left the fuck alone. That was an emotional little piece. You guys, my husband and I have actually had a lot of conversations about that moment. And it was a rough, it was a rough moment. <laughs> um, he was just doing his best with the information he, he had at the time too. And obviously if I couldn't even articulate something, there was no way I could expect him to understand. But once I did, thankfully everyone was on my side. I am actually going to stop here. I am going to record the rest from 3 a.m. on May 12th, which is my son's birthday, through his birth. Um, And I am going to put that all in a part three. So thank you all for listening. And I will drop part three. Um, I don't know. As soon as I can. (laughs) It'll be coming super soon, though. I won't leave you guys cliffhanged for too long. Um, reach out if you want more explanation, you want to know more, please apologize. Um, or please excuse just my stuttering, my slip up on words. Reading straight from a blog is not how I'm used to recording podcasts. I'm used to kind of doing them off the cuff. So I appreciate, um, your patience with that. And I will see you guys in part three.